This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Hello and welcome to the Shakti Hour, a podcast on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. I'm your host, Melanie Moser, and today I'm sharing a conversation with Vicki Noble, the co-creator of the Mother Peace Tarot deck and author of several books, including Shakti Woman and The Double Goddess. I had a really great time talking to Vicki, and I really want to talk to her again and uh, get into some more specifics with her. She has so much wisdom on the divine feminine, on Shakti, on the double goddess, on the dark goddess, on matriarchal systems. She's so wise, very fun, and and just did a collaboration with Christian Dior on her Motherpiece Tarot artwork. And they did this really cool collection of jackets and dresses uh, featuring the artwork that uh, came out in the end of 2017. So definitely check that out. Enjoy this conversation and go to vickinoble.com or to the Shakti Hour page to find links to purchase uh, Vicky's books and to play with the Motherpiece Tarot. She did pull a card for the Shakti Hour itself. At the end, uh, she shares that and reveals what the card of this podcast is, which was pretty cool. Um, thank you so much for listening to the Shakti Hour. You can, of course, uh, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at Shakti Hour and on Instagram, Meditate with Melanie and the Shakti Hour podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and now enjoy this conversation with Vicki Noble. Your body of work is just, you know, really, we could do a whole, you know, at least six months of Shakti Hour series on on your body of work. Yes, basically, on your body of work around, around, the, around the feminine and around Shakti and around the goddess and and you know all these different things but but i i guess i i wanted to maybe start by just digging in a little bit to this idea of matriarchal consciousness that Ooh. that uh that you have written about and and maybe you could share with us how how you came to that understanding uh-huh. and how that's maybe evolved for you yeah, that's a wonderful question. It's sort of like my whole life, my whole career, my whole career life. Um, so first of all, just to clarify, the word matriarchy has been so um, really, I think, deliberately misunderstood. And there's a kind of a resistance to understanding what it actually means and what it actually points to. People prefer in my experience, to, to, to imagine that it means the opposite of patriarchy. So it means not the opposite, but the flip side, as if uh, women dominating is the meaning. <clears throat> it doesn't mean anything like that. There's never been a culture that we know of where women dominated men. And so that's what the anthropologists always say. There's never been a culture where women dominated men, so therefore you can't use the word matriarchy. There's never been one, there can't be one. 
And we say matriarchy, when you break it down linguistically, means beginning with the mother, mother beginning, or beginning with the mothers. And so it's evolutionary, you know. We know now that we all come out of Africa, that we we have an ancestral dark mother. That's what uh, Lucia Birnbaum, do you know her work? Mm. Lucia Cavala Birnbaum. Yeah. <clears throat> she talked about the African dark mother and that being our essential um, ancestry. So we share that. Everybody came out of Africa. We all... Um, share a matriarchal beginning. The, the original unit, uh, family unit, you could call it, is the mother and child. I mean, it's so fundamental. It always seems silly in a way to talk about it because it's so simple and biological and really not very debatable. The mother-child unit is original. From there, uh, other offspring, siblings, Everybody belongs to the same mother line. So the mother and daughter is often how we talk about matriarchy because uh, it's matrilineal, uh, but it, uh, it's mother, mothers and daughters and sons, and it's mothers' brothers, you know, who function in the role of um, the social father, you might say. So... Biological fatherhood is something I think people knew perfectly well since forever about biological fatherhood, but they didn't institutionalize it. In matriarchy, it doesn't uh, generally make very much difference. The cultures are organized around the household of the mother. Usually you could think of it in terms of an extended family where mothers and uh, daughters uh, are in the center. Mothers, you know, mothers have children. All the children are part of the family. There, there's no possibility of having an illegitimate child because paternity has nothing to do with anything. And so I, that's very challenging for us in the West. But it's really, it's so simple in its actual presentation. And, uh, some of the feminist anthropologists have told us that even in the very beginning of our hunter-gatherer existence, when we came down out of the trees, you know, and differentiated ourselves as human and stood upright and had menstruation, which is unique to our species, all of that, when that happened, um, had, had <clears throat> mothers at the center in terms of creating social units. So this is all anthropological stuff, and uh, but I I bring it in because we're looking today in the in the matriarchal studies movement we're looking at uh, living matriarchal cultures. I think of them as little remnants of what was always the situation until about five thousand years ago. Patriarchy is very strange; it's an aberration, or at least it's a detour. You know, it's a, a switch of some kind, and it with patriarchy comes social stratification, class stratification, centralized government, the rise of the state, slavery, domination, all those things. And before that, those things don't exist. And in some uh, contemporary matriarchal uh, cultures, the Moso in China, for example, or uh, who else, the Kasi in India, uh, for a long time, probably now it's a little different, but for a long time in their up, uncorrupted state, they uh, didn't even have words for rape. You know, they didn't even have a concept of male violence toward women in that way. Um, often, actually, the Moso in China had no uh, concept or no word for husband, no word for father because it was not relevant. Those, those were not institutionalized roles. The, um, yeah, I just heard there was just a reporting from, uh, on the BBC <clears throat> from a woman, uh, a businesswoman in China who had gone to, who had abandoned her life and gone to live with the Moso. 
Um, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it, and was t- was sharing about that how, yeah, how the man would just come to the mother's yeah. house and and then and leave. Well, and it's more interesting than that. The girls get their periods, so around thirteen or so, they are given their own rooms. So it's called her flower room, and they then are free to entertain boys and then men, you know, as they wish. Um, the boys live in their mother's similar compounds, and they come in the night and visit their girlfriends, their lovers, their partners, and they go back in the morning, and all their productive work goes into the mother's household. And same for the girls. Uh, they live in the, in the mother's larger compound, and they, uh, there's no economic connection uh, to sexuality. So in no way are the relationships dependent uh, economically, which is incredible. Imagine. Right. So, I mean, so that's the threat. I mean, that, I mean that's the, the threat to current society. Um, Absolutely. The, you know, I know there was a, Steve Bannon a while ago was, was writing this, you know, doomsday post in the world, you know, we, we don't, I don't want that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I'm afraid, you know, that we'll turn around and do, do them in, do them what they've done to us. There's a big word, whether it's consciously expressed right. or unconsciously held, you know, that women will get oh, revenge. <laughs> Is it really that? Is it that the men think that, that, that if we took power, we would do to them what they had done to us? Is that what that is? Or what is the powerful? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, there've even been, uh, actually there was a novel I read recently called The Power, written by a woman, quite mm-hmm. a good story, mm-hmm. um, which in which she posited that women got uh, through some force, I can't remember, got some special forces, some special abilities, uh-huh. sort of psychic abilities, but more like uh, sort of sci-fi, you know, like abilities uh, to do move powerful things. Um, and all she see, I mean, the the story was then how women took revenge, got really mean, and you know, basically wielded power the way men have wielded power. Right, and, and that's so how me, that's I, how Me Too is playing out right now. It's playing out in this this powerful. You hurt me, so now you're, we're taking your career, which is not what we're talking about when we're talking about a matriarchal society. That's right. This is like, but do you think that this is some sort of, this is a necessary balancing? Or do you think that we would be better served just uh, embodying this matriarchal uh, consciousness? Well, that we can't get there from here without a process. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been thinking about that myself this week, because uh, in some ways, the beginning of the Me Too movement was exhilarating, I have to say watching powerful men fall from places where they've abused power. I thought it had a lot to do with Pluto in Capricorn. Hmm. Pluto's in the last 10 degrees of the sign of Capricorn now. And it's a lot about falling from power if you've abused power. So I think, and, and for women, Pluto often functions in a very empowering way. So as an astrologer, I see it as right on time, you know, hmm. and and I felt that in the beginning, it was, as I say, I, I felt exhilarated, like, yes, it's about time. And, and what, a, what an incredible um, phenomenon that suddenly, why, suddenly, it's actually not okay anymore yeah. for men to behave like that. And it's not okay for everybody to act like it's not happening. And so everybody's culpable which is kind of frightening. And, um, and the thing that's been happening in uh, Virginia, I guess it is, this week, is kind of unnerving, as, as some of them have been all along, where you just feel like, well, there are these gradations, and uh, it's not all the same. 
you know, and a lot of people have already said that. That's not new. Uh, but right. I do think that's what we're seeing is a kind of, I'm sure this probably happens with all movements in the beginning, where as it popularizes or as it takes shape and comes into the mainstream, where it's not just, you know, some radical idea, but actually becomes embodied in mainstream culture, I do think there's always a kind of uh, fanaticism that can happen. We're always in danger of that. As a very young feminist who came out as a feminist, you know, when I was 22 or something, I I remember how uh, generalized it was for me. I remember how much trouble I gave my professors at, when I went back to get my BA at uh, Colorado College, and they were so kind. They were so really quite spacious hmm. with me. I would say I'm not I'm not reading Thucydides. It's just a bunch of lies. I'm not reading it. <laughs> and my my classics professor said, "Okay, read something else and write me a paper." You hmm. know, they were really. It was really. Hmm. It was me. I was so. It was a hair trigger. You know, I just. Well, but don't you know? It I, doesn't. Don't you think? Like from this matriarchal, from the from the. In a patriarchal society, there is that the vulnerability of the feminine, you know, I'm thinking of a pregnant woman or, or a newborn, a woman with like, really what you have is your, vo is your voice, you know, the, you're the vulnerable in this physical level. So on a certain degree, it, the gradations are only relevant in a seat of particular power, right? So, <laughs> right. So, you know, like, so sitting here, you and I sitting here can, can in this moment where you know, we both are in our, on in our individual lives can look at those different things. But in another moment in our lives as, as women, the voice to say, no, you can't even do that because I can't uh -huh. take it. Like, it's not going to, it's going to injure me. Uh huh. Well, and that's certainly a, a battle that women have, that feminist women have fought in their relationship lives. I mean, I, I think that's really true where you, it's, you're kind of a purist, you know, we're, if we're going to be equal, we're going to have to be equal. And these little <laughs> microaggressions as the, uh, what is that, as the jargon goes yeah. these days, those uh, matter, you know just the tiniest breach of whatever contracts you're making with a male partner, for example, um, can be uh, upsetting enough, can be a deal breaker. If right. you, if you, if you're really, you know, I just, I felt in my own relationships over the course of my life that I am actually not able to be dominated. It's not possible for me. I think once you're awake to that, you know, that every mm -hmm. little, nuance hmm. of behavior and uh, feeling and everything is is noticeable and you're always weighing it so so in a way I just feel like we're probably gonna go too far with the me too movement in many people's minds but it probably isn't going too far because we need, I mean hopefully we won't go it won't go so far that the backlash that comes down on it is worse than what we've endured before. But, you know, as a 71-year-old hmm. feminist who's been a feminist for 50 years, I feel like, you know, it is about time. I mean, really, it's ridiculous, you know. Well, and even in my own, even in my own mind, uh, through the, throughout the course of the, the, the movement, which honestly, this is the first time it's come up on the Shakti Hour, which is hilarious, but I, um, <laughs> but I, uh, it's uh, unbelievable to me the things that then became unacceptable in my own mind that I had endured or things that I had written yes. written as yes. one as one story then I was it was revealed to me as yes. something that really was uh, an act an act against my mm -hmm. my humanity mm -hmm. beyond my you know femaleness yes. and so I I do think that there is like you that there is and and also then <laughs> this leads to the 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 other piece of your work that's you know foundational the the dark 
the dark goddess, there is this <laughs> yes. like there is the depth, the depth that I think is also part of what's being explored within the individual woman and also then through this movement is like, well, but this goes really deep. Like Yes. I could five thousand years. Yes. Five thousand <laughs> we used to say I had a poster that had uh, I can't remember the picture, but it said your five thousand years are up. You know, and that was in the nineteen seventies. And here we are in the two thousand and teens and right. You know, we're still working on the same <laughs> right. Uh, vision. <laughs> right. So what can you tell us about that 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 time period then as you've seen this this evolution of consciousness around you know the the feminine and and the point of view of the mother uh-huh. and and the goddess. Well that's that's very apropos of your show name because uh the um, what I often spend time trying to explain or uh, maybe bring out the the feeling of is the the joy and the freedom that we felt in the 1970s. It was so exhilarating. the the op- the option to quit patriarchy in some sense, you know, the awakening of a feminist paradigm was so amazing. Well, you know, it's so interesting to me because the one of the great gifts of being a part of the the Ramdas community is that I I do get to spend time with people from different generations, which I uh-huh. think is and I, I get to spend time with and I've gotten to know and and talk with um several of you that, that were there, right? <laughs> you know? yeah. And it is very, very different. It's yes. very, very different that because you, like you, um, and I think I love that you brought up Shakti as a part of it, because it really does seem to me that you were all kind of steeped in this energy. Like it was uh-huh. not only LSD and, <laughs> and, no, and, and, uh, trips to the East and, uh, feminism and, and, and whatever. It, it was not all only those things. There was, there was definitely an energetic yeah. shift that was yeah. happening. And, and, and I spoke with Ramdas about it a little bit last year when we were just talking about how now it's almost like the, the possibility for awakening is greater, but there's less support for it. So he, uh, energetically, yes. energetically, there's like more, more like possibility to see things a different way, but less of the foundational mm. structure. And I think that that's something that kind of, oh, you know, that well, it lends to the mythology of the, of the sixties and seventies, because you were uh-huh. sprouting on such solid ground. I mean, the, the contrast between the status quo and what you were creating was quite yeah. great, right? Yeah. The world culture, in some way, uh, was open to what we were bringing. Right. That's true in the civil rights movement. It's true in the uh, in any of the movements, but certainly um, in the women's movement, there mm-hmm. was an openness. You know, it it somehow uh, wasn't as threatening to most of the culture. Of course, there is that element uh, of radical uh, conservative Christianity and so on. And that element went into very focused uh, backlash, very focused, very intelligent uh, organization for over the next decade until they actually were able to turn it around which has been sort of educational because I think we weren't really paying attention. We were riding a wave of tremendous uh, success and exhilaration and possibility. Anything was possible, um, which is just, you know, not true anymore. And with the fall of the the, uh, inability to pass the Equal Rights Amendment, that was a very concerted effort on the part of Uh, right-wing women Hmm. there was a right-wing women's movement Hmm. you know and it was very focused and has been 
ultimately quite successful. And I think that's uh, that's some kind of a lesson because, you know, Shakti, it's, it's all about a kind of wonderful, spontaneous creativity, a sort of endless source of energy and and creativity. And creatives aren't always paying attention mm-hmm. to long-term uh, need for focus and for focused goals and so on. And I think we got the rug pulled out from under us on account of that, or maybe it's just impossible. I look at Democrats and Republicans even that way, mm-hmm. that it's awfully hard. Democrats are intellectual and they talk about everything and they parse it all out and it's uh, it's great, you know, it's such a good analysis, but but we're, we don't have very good focus because we're kind of creative and spontaneous and moving on and interested in a lot of things. And the Republicans have this tremendous long-term goal kind of focus. They've been focusing for all, all these years. How long ago? It's almost, you know, it's almost 50 years. They're still focusing on getting rid of Roe versus Wade. Right. It's just one, one issue. Right. But they never leave off of it. Right. Well, and and it also is so linked to to religion, right? Yes, because, exactly. Because then you know what is life, and when does life begin and end, and and that has yeah. to do with shakti and creativity, and so it seems yeah. like. But you know, so but it has but, to do with has to do with Kali. <laughs> well, it has to do with Kali, but it also, I mean, I mean, but she. She consumes whatever we throw at her, though. No, I mean, is she discriminating about what she consumes? You know, uh, Kali, was she discriminating if we throw Roe v. Wade at her or if we throw, uh, you know, like, what is she? I guess what I mean when yeah. I say the dark goddess or yeah. the black dakini, my yidam, yeah. or, the, or Kali, uh, is that in the goddess religion, which I guess to backtrack a little bit, you know, that's what we did in the 70s, a lot of us, we not only left our husbands and heteronormative patriarchy, we left uh, the culture in many ways, we left our churches, and our synagogues, and so on. And we created a new religion, a new old religion, you know, borrowing from what we could see and understand of ancient times. And we did that individually, in a way, as part of a movement that was taking shape that none of us were aware of until it took shape, you know? And so there was this tremendous collective impulse Mm. to say no to the idea that God is a white man living in heaven, you know, and that Mm. he's judgmental and uh, violent. We, we said, no, that doesn't make any sense to us and, and left that entirely behind and left, uh, you know, left so many things behind. Even economically, so many radical feminist uh, spiritual women went to the country, lived in uh, collectives, you know, and, and so on. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the wave of resistance um, has partly been successful because it has uh, erased that history we do that in capitalism anyway, but they, the the history of that decade of the 70s has more or less been erased. The uh, lesbian separatist movement, you know, that was so juicy uh, at the time has been uh, perceived and, and uh, depicted as prudish and non-sexual and things like that. You know, there's just wildly misconstrued uh, pictures and depictions of what feminism is, what radical feminists were and are, all of that is so nicely erased through the uh, powerful industry that puts out images and produces stories in our culture. And that, that machine that constantly and so effectively puts out those negative messages about women and, and feminism and, and our history and what has gone before. It makes the next generation of women 
um, feel that it's uh, sort of out of fashion. And that's, that really gets us in America. We don't want to be out of step, you know. We like to be current. And I think we have an enormous value we put on that. And so to be out of step with what's fashionable is, is uh, impossible. <laughs> you know, we can't stand it. And so that's been very effective. And it's a hard story to um, come up against. Because And so I, that's what I think has uh, possessed me over the decades, you know, to keep trying to bring that feeling of that time period back, to try to remind people what Shakti looks like, you know. What does it look like when a whole culture awakens to its own potential or its own uh, energetic, creative possibilities? The, when when each woman, you know, waking up to the idea that, no, I don't actually have to do this. I don't have to be anybody's uh, secondary. I don't have to be in this role where I'm not myself. I can actually explore all possibilities. It was thrilling. You know, it was thrilling. It's very enlivening. And we need somehow to find that again. And I think in the Me Too movement, there's probably some of that going on. The The collectivity, the sisterhood, the solidarity with other women so that you can actually speak your experience and not be denied that experience is, is so empowering that it pro- you know, it's likely to go a little overboard. We, we always probably are likely to go a little overboard, I'd say, in any movement. Right. Well, you know, but just in your sharing of that, your passionate sharing of your dedication to bringing that Shakti experience to people. You know, I get that feeling from you, but part of what you're saying about it is that there was this joy and there was this, this like awakening and a joy and a, and a liberation. And, and I wonder about that these days. And, um, and I have this great reverence, I would say for uh, Jacinda Ardern, the, the prime minister of New Zealand in the way that she seems to be leading has a lightness and a a femininity Mm -hmm. and a a joy to it while it's still (laughs) kind of just throwing out all of this garbage, literally like no plastic bags, (laughs) no, (laughs) no fracking in the oceans, like, you know, very, very much, but, but doing it in a way and being pregnant, giving birth while in office, you know, all of these kinds of, um, Really, Beautiful. I don't know all this. Oh, you must check her out. She's yes. she's fabulous. Yeah, the prime yeah. Minister, current prime minister of New Zealand, and and I feel that she's an expression of that. Uh-huh. Um, in I power. think it was yeah, I think it was also true in Iceland. Yeah, you know the women uh, came into governing power and. <laughs> Everything worked out. <laughs> and before that, it was really a mess. Right. And it was very light, but at least as much as I know about it. It seemed very lighthearted and, uh, and also in solidarity, women working together. Because it's never just one woman. You know, Hillary Clinton wouldn't really have made that big of a difference, even though I wish it had happened. Um, it, it takes much more than one woman. Because one woman in, in a male role, you know, it's it's kind of doomed. But mm. but half the women, half the people in the room being women, now that is powerful. Because women have, you know, oxytocin, the mm. hormone oxytocin. The more more of us get together, trying to do something beneficial, mm-hmm. the more oxytocin is generated. Mm-hmm. The more oxytocin is generated the more male testosterone kind of dials down a little bit because it's a certain kind of comfort zone for men and women to be immersed in oxytocin. So I'm, I'm, I'm all into the science now. Um, yeah, you know, I think, um, I think that that's another piece of this moment too is, you know, the individual and the, and the group 
and and that uh, with the rise of feminism and the capacity to do and be whatever we can to do and be, um, I've run into some resistance with some younger women who are wanting to just, they want to try their hand at the game as it yeah. stands, you know? Yeah. They want to get out there like, why, yeah, why can't I go for the thing, you know, the way that I want to, the way that the game is, I can play the game the way that it's, it is out there. And I don't want to give that up. Um, Well, I think that happened to more than just women. I think that actually is a little bit of an explanation of what happened in general with uh, movements for, uh, you know, for environmental reform and so on. If we really meant it, we would have to give up so much. The cars we drive, the everything, so many things. We would we really we have to, you know, give up some things. We have to sacrifice some things if we want to keep the planet alive. And I think that's very difficult, of course, for anybody. And I think that as a group we kind of went for the capitalist dream. You know, we kind of reached for the gold ring. I remember Jackson Brown's beautiful song, After the Deluge, where he he basically said that he described the dropping out back to the land movement and, and then reaching for the gold ring. I'll never forget those words because I, I fear that we have traded uh, our, you know, the we've traded the values, I guess, the... I'm looking for some word that isn't quite that vision values. It's we've a little bit. It's the integrity. It's like the the heart. Yeah. The meat. The heart of it is. Yeah. Is um. Is we couldn't some, bring ourselves to really do what was necessary. You know, so we've we've caved in, and here we are going over the cliff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that? That is, is that human nature or is that specific to I think it's spiritual to awakening or, or oh. mm, no, I don't I think it's specific to capitalism. I think mm-hmm. capitalism is a, a really uh, underestimated force. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that really it's it's almost unstoppable. It's so when you're in up. your twenties and abandoning your lives and going to start a cooperative farm and and then, <laughs> then your kids become teenagers and want to go to college and you're a bit older or maybe there's a health problem. Then <laughs> potentially these, these things look uh, less inviting to be the, bo- the, yes. the bottom line or something. And also um, just the way that uh, this, this must, I don't know, I'm not an economist, so I really can't speak to this in an expert way, but... The fact, uh, one of the facts about the 70s that made it so exhilarating was that it took very little money to live. You know, when Karen Vogel and I moved to Berkeley in 1976 and uh, began our project that turned into the Motherpiece cards that came out five years later in 81, uh, it was possible to live on almost nothing. We had my child support. We had a little stipend from her mother. She had saved, you know, $10,000 from something. And so we put, we went to buy a house, a five bedroom house in the Berkeley Flats. And we, and it was easy. You know, somebody sent us to the credit union. We talked to a loan officer. We said, we have BAs, we have degrees, but we don't want to have jobs because we're writing a book. So don't worry, we'll pay our mortgage. And he said, okay, sign here. You know, that would <laughs> never, ever happen again. That was a moment in time that was so, uh, it was so supportive. So we actually were able to move into this house mm-hmm. and live there during the whole time that we made the Mother Peace Project without any other income. Only what we had from these, uh, you know, small, stable sources. Mm. And 
in that period of time, we, we didn't have a car. We walked everywhere, took public transportation, made my kids, my <laughs> unhappy teenagers, do the same thing. Um, you know, it was just, uh, and, and, but what happened during that period, the fate that helped us so much in the Mother Peace Project, um, housing market tripled in that five-year period. And our house was worth enough to get a second mortgage and publish the cards, print the cards. And the cards, of course, made my whole career. So, you know, it was a, a particular moment in history. My students ask me now, what can we do, for, you know, to find right livelihood? I say, I, anything you can find. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such a different time. Mm -hmm. You can't just drop out like we did. Mm -hmm. It takes so much money to live in California. Right. I mean, maybe that's this, instead of these, you know, great philanthropic efforts to, you know, <laughs> get uh, healthcare, you know, these are wonderful efforts, but uh, make, you know, healthcare app that delivers supplies to the middle of nowhere. It might be worth it to consider this very basic thing that you're saying of uh, housing, you know? Yeah. And and then back to matriarchal consciousness, of course, that's the first thing taking. that a mother would think of is that we need a safe and warm and good place for the family to be, to, to live, to have our home. Yes. When that is taken care of and we have nourishing food, we can do anything. We can put our, our values yes. first. And so this and whole, yeah. everyone needs yeah. to have the same. That's the beauty of a yeah. collective mm -hmm. consciousness, you know, mm -hmm. is that it, it doesn't have to be controlled by some centralized state government that turns into the Soviet Union. It just is uh, a kind of natural gift economy where you, you, whatever resources the community shares, they share equally. They distribute equally. And, and it was women in leadership in those cultures that made that happen. And we have that past in uh, European uh, descent and, and uh, the indigenous cultures all over the world practice it. You know, it's really, it's pretty simple. Yeah, it's I know when, no Winona Leduc is, uh, you know, uh, Winona Leduc is, you know, has an economics degree from MIT, but she speaks <laughs> about... <laughs> She speaks about, you know, how she's focused on that indigenous culture the and the and the economics of her people and the people that are in her area and and making sure that everyone that's there has what they need, as opposed yes. to thinking on these grander scales, which are, you know, also, you know, very, very exciting and interesting. But so with that, you did just do this partnership with Dior, with your with the, the tarot and and. I'm kind of, yes. kind of, it's kind of all kind of flowing together to kind of culminate around this. How, how did that come about? And, and what was that like for you to? It was a dream. It was yeah. fantastic. It was, it, and, and in a certain way, I have to say really personally for me, it was such a profound affirmation of the work I've done in my life. It was such a profound affirmation that isn't coming to me right now from the publishing industry, for example, they, they're not that interested. And, uh, you know, there are just so many ways that I've lived on the edge most of my life in terms of economics and, and all that. And it's been fine. I, I chose that, you know, and, but it was remarkable mm -hmm. to have someone value the work that Karen and I did after all these years to value it on that level. It was thrilling. And, in a certain way, it was like, uh, I, I, to use a football term, which I, I don't even watch football, but <clears throat> it was like an end run, you know, that concept around the publishing industry, because it's hard. I haven't been, I've been pretty upset about not being able to get a book published for quite a while without completely changing my values, you know. Mm -hmm. And so this was just a direct uh, connection, a direct affirmation. And the way it happened was magical from beginning to end. They contacted me the night before my 70th birthday. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was, you know, there's so much spam. I just thought it was something like that. 
Uh, but it wasn't. Mm. It was. Uh, it all came about through some, uh, you know, windy road of karma. I have all this karma that I don't really understand in Italy. I've been teaching in Italy for the last 12 years, uh, often twice a year. And so I have many, many, many women students there, and they've uh, translated and published my books. So I almost all of my books are, are published there. And Maria Grazia Curie was put in place a couple of years ago as the first woman ever to be artistic director at, at Christian Dior. And the first thing she did was to make a campaign based on uh, an African woman's uh, phrase, we should all be feminists. Her name is uh, Chimamanda, uh, Chimamanda Noguchi Adichie, and she's wonderful and has written a little, it was a TED Talk that she turned into a little book, which I had read, We Should All Be Feminists. And I had used the the words on my collages that I do with my students. Hmm. And so when the, when, so she read my book in Italian hmm. and found and loved it and made it part of the vision of her, her show, her clothing line and uh, loved the mother piece images. She already uh, had a, you know, she had a predilection toward the tarot and so did Christian Dior apparently, hmm. according to her. And so all of that came together, you know, in this just completely, was such a creative event. I felt that the message to me was relax, you know, kind of step back. Don't try to mastermind everything because the universe is so much more creative. <laughs> like yeah. I never, I yeah. never would dream that up, you know. Right. And, and it has been wonderful working with her, working with them. They made the most beautiful images. I mean, most beautiful dresses out of our images, featuring our images. Really, it was so profound. And we're kind of still in it, but it's almost over. That's how fashion is, you know? <laughs> yeah, it goes, it goes pretty quick. But then it, it, yeah. then it becomes another, another legacy, another legacy of those, those images and another inroad into, yes. into your work and into your tarot. And yes. I'm curious about your reflections then on on tarot as it has become actually very mainstream or more mainstream in the last few years. It's something that people have embraced or have started to yeah incorporate in their spirituality or so. How do you feel about that? I feel great about it because I, what I have uh, experienced in the last couple of years is all the young women who are using the mother piece and who have been using it for a while. Their mothers gave them the decks in many cases, you know? And so it's like it skipped a generation maybe. Maria Grazia Curie is uh, around the age of my two daughters. So uh, she's like a woman who grew up to be a feminist and really stands strong in that. So it's thrilling. I love that because uh, that generation of my daughters didn't really do that for a long time. You know that. It, well, and there, but there <laughs> are some pitfalls with tarot. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that on the on the mother piece deck per se. But there are some pitfalls with with the tarot, or or maybe there's not. Maybe. Maybe well, what uh, do you what do you mean? Well, you in the in the you know actually, <laughs> I saw a a post come through um, uh, my Instagram the other day. Someone posted this meme that said, um, you know, date someone who doesn't make you check the tarot every fifteen minutes. <laughs> a Which man I, said that about a woman. You mean? No, a woman. A woman was saying that uh, about um, a man. Like you know, the, really? because. It, because of the use, I, I interpreted it as the the use of the desire to predict or to control or insecurity or uh, some lower vibration instinct to oh, grab. It's like, a misunder it's like a misunderstanding yeah. of how uh, oracles are used, I think. So give us, give uh, us a clear... Give us a clear um, yeah. read on what the, how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say two things in relation to your comment. One is that uh, I'm remembering now that, of course, 
when the mother piece came out, the tarot community hardly related to it at all. And in fact, hardly ever have over the years. So once uh, some newspaper or somebody called me to do an interview about the tarot, and for just a minute, I didn't know what they were talking about. Like, why me? <laughs> because Mother Peace is so different. And, and so I, that's the first thing that I think it's really important to say is that it truly is a different, it's a bifurcation of some kind. I mean, we revisioned the tarot in a way that hasn't really uh, been acceptable to the, to, the, uh, to the tarot establishment. Okay, so having said that, the thing that has always happened with Mother Peace is that it has actually led women into the tarot. They've told me many times that they used to be afraid of it. It was dark. Uh, you know, they didn't want to get involved. And then they found the Mother Peace. And we made the Mother Peace exactly with that in mind. We, we were in a uh, phase of great transformation, me and Karen, in the late 70s tremendous spiritual transformation and we were but it had a feminist center so our that that's our lens and so what we were aware of was uh, using psychic methods and healing methods to cleanse ourselves of the imagery particularly the imagery of patriarchy to get those, we felt that those images had been implanted in us, all women, from in the womb, and that uh, we had to do something very dramatic to get them out and keep them out, the negative images of the feminine, you might say, the prescribed roles and all that. And so we learned in our psychic classes and so on uh, that you can't just remove an image or a cut a cord or any of those psychic techniques without replacing it with something beautiful, something that you choose, something that produces joy instead of harm. And so that we were coming from that place when we started to make the mother piece images. It was all about healing. And I was coming from some kind of incredible shamanic awakening that had happened and many uh, kundalini experiences, many things I didn't understand fully at the time, but they were happening and they were very sacred and it was a kind of a context where I was uh, awakening and transforming very quickly and understanding that it was possible. I figured if it was possible for me, it was possible for any any woman. Um, you know, now I understand a little better about karma and past lives and what we come in with and all those more mystical uh, aspects of the work. But at the time, I just felt like if I can grow up in Iowa with no intellectual background whatsoever and move to California and have this brilliant awakening, anybody can. Hmm. And, uh, and that was my basic approach in my teaching for a right. long time. So, so, your, so your experience of the tarot was very personal, and it was this healing, transformational expression of and very devotional of devotional you know, yeah uh, it was really the mother goddess or whatever you want to call it right the the whole uh, relationship of of female deity right. and, and that you know completely permeates the mother piece cards without it being necessary to be religious about it you know it, it's it's can be fun you can pull the mother piece cards out at a party and have fun it's not, uh, there's, there's nothing in it that's going to take you down to a dark uh, place or, I don't know, how to, the language, you know. But. Well, but it's been transmuted through your own process. So, uh, so that in that, I think that that's the, um, I think that that as a, as a creator versus a practitioner, that there's something to that in that you created that and had that alchemical experience through mm. <laughs> through the manifestation of this tarot deck uh -huh. that other people can then draw from yes you know, and and it, that transmits you know as you know those kinds of energies for any artist i think doing any kind of uh 
spiritual work, you're transmitting something. And when somebody picks up our deck, it's a transmission. It's not just visual. There's something coming through. Right. So you have created this capsule of that <laughs> possibility, that joy, that moment that, that you're hoping to impart to all of us. And it, now it's coming through in this new fashion line. And, and what is it that you're, you're working on next? Like, what is it that you are currently putting your, your energy into? Mm. I'm working on a couple of different projects, a book project with two friends that comes to mind. Cause I was just in Southern California working on it. Um, we're, it's a project that has to do, it's focused on the Indus Valley, you know, ancient India before the Vedas and all that. Um, but, but really it's turning out to be, uh, much more than that, like everything always does. And it's, uh, so much our own, uh, we're coming at it from three different angles, but we're, uh, really trying to, again, bring forth, make real, bring alive the uh, reality that we all live inside of, of another way of being, this matriarchal way of being, this uh, feminine way of being. People are more comfortable with feminine, but um, it's really, it's all of that. You know, there's a whole other way of being that it includes empathy and integrity and ethics and love and joy and connection and bonding and we're we're actually doing a history project you might say that bring allows us to bring that philosophical lens through what we see in old europe the goddess civilizations of old europe and the work of maria gimbutas which has now just recently been vindicated the dna research that's come out recently fantastic it's made her right, and so the archaeological establishment has to deal with it, and we love that, and so we're bringing some of that, and, and we're making uh, very vast connections across Afro-Eurasia, which I did already do in my Double Goddess book uh, that came out in 2003. I'm all about those big connections over time between <clears throat> East and West, and the women behind it that underpin the whole culture, the whole cultural connection. Women in shamanism, women in spiritual leadership, uh, even all the way up to the time of uh, Christianity. So I'd like lots of thousands of years. Well, that just sounds amazing. I, I mean, I'm just so um, super grateful for all of your work and and your continued your continued enthusiasm to explore <laughs> these things and and I and I feel like um I feel like we need to seriously consider doing a bit of a series cuz I want to dig deeper into <laughs> more of these topics that we just glanced over now but given your <laughs> given your um your depth of practice in from different so many different angles and your um, wisdom across traditions, what quick piece of advice would you give to women and girls on the spiritual path? Ah, well, you know, uh, from the beginning when I did the mother piece with Karen, uh, till now when I'm adapting these Tibetan Buddhist practices for women, I always am really looking for the same outcome. I want women not only to uh, have their intuition, we, we're, we're allowed that in our culture. Women are said to be more intuitive and so on. So we get to have it, but we rarely get to act on it. The culture doesn't like it when we tell the truth, doesn't like it when we say what we see, when we, if, if it disagrees in any way with what's happening and so I, I, I feel whatever tools a woman can use to help her ground herself in the deep feminine, whatever she can do, whether it's uh, 
Dakini practices or the Mother Peace Tarot or some other form of, of spiritual guidance or spiritual direction, what needs to happen is that all women, all of us, need to overcome our socialization, which has ungrounded us from our own deep central axis. And we need to find some way of moving back to the center of our own mandala, to the center of our own reality, and that we need to be able to act from that deep connection to what is real for us, to what we know in our hearts. And once we can do that, we can make progress. So that is great. So that knowing, so what can you advise on how to act on that knowing? So if you get access to the knowing, what are some tools or ways to act on it? Well, for me, it's always been, I, since I've been a healer since the 1970s, it's a lot about the energetics. I think that energetically, I mean, I know it's about embodiment. So we have to have exercise and we have to have yoga and we have to have ways of coming back into our bodies and being in the center of that consciousness. So physical things, yes. But we also need energetic ways, uh, psychic ways. We need to change our psychic structure. And it takes time. You do it over time. And you can do it in the simplest way. The mother piece has always been a way to do that for a woman. If she looks at the cards every day, it's not about uh, predicting the future. It's about looking at what's actually happening right now. So you can do that through all oracles, I think, where you can... You get the truth, you know, okay, what's true here? Am I seeing something that I need to act on or am I just afraid or am I, you know, having a fantasy? And the, and the oracles will mirror back to you what's true and you'll feel it and acknowledge it in your body. We need more of that. We need a lot of that. We need a sort of continuous practice of that. Well, and as you're saying that too, that, that continuous practice it even is the initial part and that psychic, the energetic and the psychic part is the practice of, is that true? Is this, am I knowing this? Is this my knowing? Yes. That yeah. can even be the first action before even taking it into the material plane is uh -huh. that practice of reflecting it back to yourself and, and coming into that confidence, that energetic yes. vibrational yeah. confidence around that. Yeah. can be a thing. And I love that the use of, of images and specifically the mother piece tarot and, but even just, even just reflecting through different images and different ways of, of using the practice of Oracle can be a way of strengthening that own, your own knowing. I mean, uh -huh. I, I definitely use, have used that through the practice of Guru Kripa practicing with my guru. That's definitely kind of part of that, you know, Yes. Reflecting Guru to Yoga. him. Yeah. Uh -huh. Reflecting to him. And then I'll also use that with, I use texts, um, but I haven't used it as much in imagery. And I'm going to, um, I'm always looking for the meaning behind uh -huh. the image. And I like that you're offering that I can just use that reflection, that image, the image reflective. Um, and then I can, can go dig deeper into the meaning if I need to, but to just stop even with the image. Knowing now, how deep the the cultivation was <laughs> in order to create the images that you have created. Mm. Um, it it reminds me of the you know the power of art you know the power of of looking at art. Yes, uh, you know the there's a wonderful new book. Uh, Victoria Christensen is the editor who put this together. It's a lovely, big, beautiful anthology. Uh, it's called, oh, it's, oh, <laughs> I can't remember the exact title, but it's beautiful uh, art of the feminine divine, basically. Uh, mostly women artists, some men, and uh, quite a tremendous variety of images. I have a, an essay in there about the Dakini tradition and the Dakini practices, but there's every kind of uh, expression of the divine feminine in, in art. 
the title is something like that, but look up Victoria Christensen. It's just really a beautiful book. That sounds like a great uh, place to use as an oracle. Well, we <laughs> we we ought to close here, but uh, maybe is it would it make sense to pull a, a a card for the Shakti Hour? Absolutely. It's a it's kind of an Amazon card. There, the chariot, the major arcana number seven. Beautiful. Yeah, so that has a lot to do with being in the real world and accomplishing your goals. And and in a secret sort of more esoteric way, it has to do with the adept, the practitioner, the aspirant. Passing the test, doing the job, <laughs> accomplishing the task, <laughs> winning, winning her way. <laughs> well, that definitely suits suits my experience of this podcast so far. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Vicki, I really, I mean, I honestly would love to keep this going, but um, I, I really feel so deeply. Uh, connected to everything you're saying and I, I really want to explore more with you um in I some way that. yeah either here or in another medium but i highly recommend that all of you listening go to the shakti hour page at beherenownetwork.com where we'll have links to purchase all of vicky's books and also link to her uh, website and what is do you want to say it now just so we have it here audio yeah, vickynoble.com. Vickynoble.com. It's real simple. She got in on those domains at the beginning. <laughs> and uh, and you can find out uh, all of her upcoming events and uh, links to everything that she has to offer you. And thank you so much, Vicky, for your time and for sharing all of your wonderful wisdom. Thank you, Melanie. It's really been a pleasure. I look forward to more. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.